thank you very much for joining us for today's presentation, uh, Virtual Town Hall on Presumptive Hearings. So in today's presentation, our pan panel of family law professionals will be discussing the following topics, access to justice, different approaches in different judicial regions, family bar experience regarding in-person hearings since April, what our clients are saying, have the presumptive guidelines brought the administration of justice into disrepute? What is the data telling us? And next steps moving forward to improve the family law justice system. And then we'll be finishing off with a Q&A segment at the end of the presentation. Without further ado, it's now my pleasure to introduce our speakers. First, we have Brian Galbraith, and Brian has been practicing family law for more than 32 years. He owns Galbraith Family Law, which has 16 lawyers practicing family law with offices in Barrie, Newmarket, and Toronto. And Brian is the incoming president of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and an international leader in the collaborative movement. Next, we have Lisa Gelman, and Lisa has been practicing family law since since being called to the bar in 1995, and in 2001, she began the law firm of Gelman & Associates. Currently, Gelman & Associates is the biggest family law firm in North York with offices around the GTA. Lisa has a BA from the University of Western in polit Political Science and an LLB from Osgoode Law School. Next, we have Nafisa Nazarelli, and Nafisa is the Senior Managing Associate Lawyer at our firm. She is a collaboratively trained lawyer and has been practicing exclusively in all areas of family law for over 10 years with the best interest of children as a primary focus when providing legal advice and strategies for her clients. She uses her skills as a collaborative lawyer to find creative ways of approach of achieving positive results for her clients. Nafisa is also committed to giving back to the community and currently sits as a board of director at Luke's Place, the Malvern Family Resource Center, the Durham Region Law Association and Collaborative Practice Durham Region. Next, we have Nick Bala, and Nick has been a law professor at Queen's University since 1980 and is a leading expert on family and children's law. His work is frequently cited by all levels of court, including the Supreme Court. Much of his research is interdisciplinary, including a present project on the effect of the pandemic on the evolution of Ontario's family justice system and access to justice being undertaken with Professor Claire Houston and Dr. Rachel Birnbaum. Next, we have Russell Alexander, and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law, and he uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So now that you know a little bit more about our panel, I'm going to pass things over to Russell to get started with the presentation. That's great. Thank you so much, Shannon. We're not going to let you run too quick. Um, so if people want to put send send us questions, they use the Q&A box. That's right? Yes, exactly. And we're going to answer those throughout. There was a pre-event survey that went out uh, yesterday and a follow-up for people who registered today. Um, we're going to be discussing that data as part of today's program. Shannon, can you uh, put the link in there for people who didn't see the survey link? It's about 12 questions. It's only going to take you a few minutes. Uh, we really want to find out what our audience is thinking in terms of the presumptive hearing. So click on that link, and we're going to look at the results a little bit later. Today's uh, town hall, it, sort of the genesis was a petition we started some time ago, and I just checked online. We've got 1,394 people signed on to have the presumptive guidelines presumptively remote. 
It's had over 123,000 views and 530 shares. So it's gotten some good traction and I'm really glad that everybody's joined us here today. So let's start off with a poll. People know me, know I love the poll questions and try to get the audience's feedback. So our first poll, if we can run that, Shannon, what aspect of giving the option of a virtual appearance, court appearance, most promotes access to family justice? So we've got a number of choices here. We're just gonna ask you for what you think the top choice is gonna be. So do we have the answers? Um, can you guys see the answers, possible answers in your screen? Right? Nope. Right. Sorry, Russ, if you can just make me host again. Okay. Oh yeah, because your power went out, right? <laughs> yeah, there are technical <laughs> difficulties. Thank you for your patience, it'll just be a moment. Do I need to call Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> All there, right. there we go, pulls up. All right, we're live. We don't have a safety net, so bear with us. All right, so which one of these um, best promotes um, access to justice. So allowing, uh, you guys can go through it. We're dealing with family violence, vulnerable litigants, responding to accessibility issues, dealing with transportation or mobility issues, reducing costs uh, of your lawyer, uh, making full use of the information you may have at your office to expedite appearances or no advantages of, uh, at all. So that's our first poll question. We're gonna give everybody maybe a few seconds to answer that. I've got an audience question I'm gonna ask. Why can't the court use breakout rooms to conduct conferences and have everyone else wait in the main Zoom session like they do in criminal courts for pretrials? So I guess the idea is the main Zoom session is gonna be your virtual courtroom. And if the judge wants to conduct a settlement conference, for example, they'll go into a breakout room with the litigants and counsel and everybody remains in the open, sort of the hallway of the court. So that's kind of an interesting idea. What do you think of that idea, Brian? I think it's brilliant. I think, you know, we, we use breakout rooms very effectively in uh, collaborative cases and in mediation and, uh, and negotiation, and, and so I think it would be a, an excellent tool that the courts should start using. It's it works so well and so easy and so fast. You know, it's but what we find is that you put people in the breakout room in an instant. Uh, but in in real life, uh, if you go to a, a, a breakout room in real life, it takes time and it, it wastes time. But on Zoom, it's very effective and efficient. It's a brilliant idea. This is a great idea. The judge, the judge's hearing is going to be in the breakout room, and they can control who's there. Everybody's, you know, the complaints we hear from the court is, I want to bring the litigants in, have them go in the hallway, work stuff out, and then conduct hearings, and Zoom doesn't facilitate that. This is a pretty easy solution to that problem, right? Right. And I think criminal courts have been doing this for uh, criminal pretrials, where they have 50 or 60 people on the Zoom call, and then they'll go into the breakout room to do the pretrial and then come back in. So great, great suggestion by an audience member. All right, let's see what our poll results are for the best option. Reducing costs of the lawyer, 38% seems to be number one. Um, family violence, 19%. 
and enable lawyers to make full use of their server's precedence, coming in about 14%. So costs seem to be on the mind of everybody these days, and that's sort of an access to justice issue, and that kind of leads us neatly into our first topic. Brian, you going to cover this one off for us? Yeah, I will. I'm just going to uh, share my screen and uh, get the PowerPoint going. So uh, why why virtual courts? Uh, the simple answer for all of us, Russ, is it's uh, access to justice. Virtual courts give uh, greater access to the judicial system, and and it's all about the client experience. That's what we're here about. Is this isn't about the lawyers or the other professionals involved in representing clients. It's about the client experience and the virtual courts give a better experience for the client. It's access to justice for the clients. So the, one of the questions I'd like to ask is, is family court a building or a service? Yeah, it was Professor Suskin who uh, asked this question in his book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. Does anyone really feel that people go to family, uh, file a, an application in family court so they can experience the grandeur of our courthouse? No. They want resolution of their family law issue. It's a service and we need to start thinking about family court as a service. And then, then we, we ask ourselves, uh, what, what, how can we provide greater access to this service? Is it requiring people to attend the courthouse or offering it through a virtual platform? And we now have two years of experience with the virtual platform and, and Certainly our group that you're, you're hearing today, our experience is that the, the virtual platform really provides a lot more access to the court system. Uh, the World Bank uh, uh, has analyzed internet usage around the world, and it reports that in 2020, 97% of Canadians had access to the internet. Now that was back in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic. I can just imagine that the uh, internet usage has increased dramatically, uh, even beyond 97%. Now, some will point out that it's not 100%. Absolutely, it's not 100%. But we shouldn't let uh, uh, good get, uh, I mean, perfection get in the way of doing something that's improving the court system. Because the court system right now is, is slow and cumbersome, and we need to find ways to make it more efficient and effective uh, for the population and, and address those 3% who need, uh, need access to the internet. But you know, I, you know Russ and Lisa, I, I say, you know, if someone doesn't have access to the internet, I doubt they'll have access to transportation to get them to the courthouse. And that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma. How do we provide these folks with uh, access to, to the court well, process? Especially in northern and rural communities, right? Or in the wintertime. Absolutely, yeah, it's huge. And the other issue is whether, uh, you know, uh, there's been an increase of self-represented litigants uh, prior to the pandemic. And, but during the pandemic, there's actually been a decrease in the number of uh, uh, people in the uh, um, being self-represented. Uh, for many of those who go to court without a lawyer, it's because of the cost. And uh, uh, going back to in-person will just push up the cost. As you can see on the screen, we've kind of anecdotally estimated the 
the costs uh, that are, are incurred by clients when we have in-person court it, uh, versus uh, virtual court. It's, it's so much more cost-effective to, to have court on Zoom than it is uh, to be in person. And so that's why people are using uh, lawyers more. Uh, they're going to court with representation because uh, they can afford a lawyer. Uh, and the, you know, in our experience, Russ and, and Lisa, you're probably the same, uh, that uh, often the courts, the clients will start in court and then they just run out of funds and can't continue. But if, if we're using virtual court, uh, that will enable clients to have uh, more funds available for um, representation, which is to the benefit of everyone. Absolutely. So who benefits, who benefits from virtual court? Well, as Russ said, the people in rural and northern communities uh, benefit tremendously. The, the commute to the courthouse can be hours. And uh, think of the gas that they spend, uh, you know, the cost of gas nowadays. Uh, and furthermore, people in rural communities can now, because we've got virtual court, can retain any lawyer in the province. And so they have choice of counsel that, that they don't uh, uh, when we're uh, in person. Uh, and even big city residents uh, benefit because, you know, trying to get around a city like Toronto uh, and get to the courthouse, it can be an hour, an hour and a half each way. And who's going to pay for this? The, if the lawyer's sitting in the car driving to the courthouse, somebody has to pay the lawyer's time and that's the client. And so it makes drives up the cost of the, the process. Victims of abuse, we mentioned that in the poll. You know, they uh, appreciate not having to be in the same building as their abuser. It's much better for them in terms of safety uh, to be in their home using the virtual court. Um, and uh, those people, of course, with lower income uh, certainly uh, benefit from the lower cost of the, the, the whole virtual court process. Hey, environmentalists, and we're all becoming environmentalists, right? As, as uh, climate change uh, impacts our lives. Uh, the, of course, the carbon footprint of a virtual court is significantly less uh, than uh, in-person court. And uh, the last one is persons with uh, disabilities uh, benefit from not having to try to navigate uh, their way through, uh, through the city to the courthouse and into the courtroom. So, so those, you know, in summary, uh, Russ, uh, I, I, we really feel like this is an, a, an issue of access to justice and that the, the virtual court provides far greater access than in person. Yeah, great, great comments. We had actually a question come in. Wouldn't it reduce the carbon footprint and overhead expenses for the court system rely less on brick and mortar courthouses, you know, the men's staff, security maintenance, and continue virtual hearing. So I think that taps right into your point of it, the carbon footprint of the justice system. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody driving to that courthouse is uh, um, polluting. Uh, and if we can uh, all stay at home, uh, that that will reduce the, the carbon footprint of uh, the justice system. Great stuff. Uh, remember, put your Q&A in the Q&A box if you have any questions. Ordinarily, these live events go one hour. We've budgeted extra time because we want to go through the survey results, and uh, Professor Bala has some really interesting data we want to get into. 
so we've added some additional time today. Our survey monkey, we have over 100 people online right now. We've got about 50 responses, so we're going to leave it open for another five minutes. Please, please, please give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. There's only 12 questions. It's going to help us understand uh, whether we're hitting the mark here with respect to virtual attendances and the presumptive guidelines. So we really, really want your feedback. So let's go into our next topic. Um, so, so Russ, um, I see that the, the link to the survey is in the chat. Is that something that the people can see or, yep. or not? So, so they can see the chat, just not uh, use it. If you cannot see the link in the chat, please let us know. If you click on the link, it should take you to the survey. We sent you the survey in advance, but you can simply click on the chat right now, fill up the survey, two minutes, fantastic. We'll have lots of data. Um, but let us know if that's not that function's not working. All right, so our second topic, different approaches in different judicial regions. And we have a couple slides we're gonna take a look at here. Shannon, if you can throw those up. You're gonna see that I'm not nearly as talented as Brian with his fancy slideshow and words flying around and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna do the best I can. So we have, and part of the survey question is we wanna know what judicial region you live in. So here's the province of Ontario divided into eight regions. If you're not sure, just look at this map. You can figure out what region you're in. And in our next slide, uh, we've got a summary of the practice directions. So we have three province-wide practice directions issued by the court. And then for each region, you're going anywhere from, you know, one to three to two to up to five or 13 practice directions. So what we're seeing as practitioners, there's a patchwork across the province for people who are trying to access the justice system. And uh, for Lisa, Brian, and I, we, we were practicing throughout Ontario during the pandemic. And we've got, I know I've got cases in um, Windsor, Ottawa, Kingston, everywhere. Uh, so you need to advise your client as to what your local practice direction is. And in my assessment, it creates some unfairness. So there's some regions where your first case conference uh, can be done virtually, which makes a lot of sense. Usually those hearings are... Housekeeping hearings, you're getting introduced to your case management judge, you're often dealing with disclosure issues, no real chance at selling the entire case. It happens, but not very often. Uh, these other regions also enable other types of conferences, such as settlement conferences, to occur on consent. If the consent's imposed, some regions have a special form where you can send it in for the case management judge to consider your request. And then we have more restrictive regions. We've all know, we all are familiar with the case law coming out of Brampton, where they want everybody back, regardless of whether you got COVID, you know, during your case, come back when you're better in two weeks. So it makes it very difficult for us to advise our clients. It also makes for an uneven playing field for a lot of clients, depending on what region you live in. So I know, for example, in the Central East region, if you started your case remotely, you're going to continue your case remotely, uh, at least throughout the course of this year and likely into 2023. So most in-person hearings in this region are not going to be scheduled until next year. Other lawyers we know in other regions, uh, Milton, Brampton, to name a few, are being ordered back to court, um, regardless of how the proceeding commenced. So I think this is something we need to be mindful of. 
let us know what your experience has been. Put it in the Q&A box. Send us any questions that you have. But I just wanted to give an overview of the practice directions. And this is for experienced counsel uh, to get this sorted and advise our clients. If you're a self-represented person, you may not even know where to find the practice directions um, to follow. So it's, it's creating some chaos. I think if it was all presumptively remote, it would make things a lot more efficient. But this is the system we have in place right now. So that's the extent of my fancy slideshow. Sorry, Brian, I couldn't uh, do better. But uh, our next topic, we're going to talk about the family law experience regarding in-person hearings since April. But I think we have a poll question before we get into this. So let's see what our audience is thinking. And don't forget, complete that survey. If it's not working, let us know. So poll question number two, since April 2022, have you attended at least one in-person family court hearing motion or conference in general? How have you found the experience? So it was a good experience. You've got different uh, options here. Um, it's better. <laughs> so give everybody a few minutes to go through this. I, I have not been in person since April. Uh, Nafisa, have you been back to court in person? Um, I have had one um, conference in person. Yeah. What was your experience like? Um, I guess we're going to talk about it. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but from, yeah, from, your, option, from your option, from the here, option. which one would you pick? <laughs> Uh, I don't have the options, um, but I would say that it was, you know, it was difficult because, uh, like you said earlier, there's not really any protocol, so you don't know what you're getting yourself into, right? You don't know whether right. you need to be masked. You, so there's a lot of uncertainty, um, and so for me, it wasn't a very good experience. Right. Let's see what our audience thinks. So let's see our results here. Good experience came in at eight percent. It's a good experience, uh, but done is. Uh, 14%. It was not a good experience. It could have been better virtually, 11%. No, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, there is, it is nice to meet your colleagues and the judges and catch up on your gossip. There is something there. Uh, no, and I'm not looking forward to it. 56%. Clear majority. Brian? Well, the thing is, that's that's really the, I assume, the professional's experience. And and what I'm more interested in is the client experience. And, and, uh, that's that's um, you know I just can't imagine that they uh, enjoy the get the struggle to get to courthouse and uh, crawl into the, the find the right room and all those sorts of experiences uh, for lawyers absolutely in person is more fun but uh, it, it's more expensive for the client and uh, the client experience isn't as good yeah well again this is a nice lead into our next topic which is um, the family law experience. So Nafisa, you want to take the floor? Yes. So um, I'm speaking about the family bar experience regarding in-person hearings. So based on numerous conversations that we've had with various members of the family law bar, um, we have received uh, certain feedback. So um, one of the feedbacks that we've gotten is that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty regarding outcomes of requests for virtual hearings. So if you're a lawyer, you can actually request a virtual hearing, but this is really left to the regional justices. Um, there's different rules for different jurisdictions, and there's not really an objective test to uh, that's equally applied to all. So you can be, you know, 
out in Oshawa, they're more willing to provide you with your request for a virtual hearing. So you're doing a lot more virtual hearings in, in Oshawa. But if you're in Toronto or Brampton, a lot of those requests are being rejected. So a lot of unequal, like there's an unequal use of that. There's no really standardized tests and, and that's causing a lot of um, unfairness throughout the region. Um, another issue is, is cost. And we've talked a little bit about that. So, you know, in-person hearings, very costly for clients. So a court appearance uh, virtually, uh, you know, you're in and out 10, 20 minutes, maybe maximum 30 minutes. You're in front of a judge. You're not waiting for your turn uh, versus in-person where you're, you could be there half a morning, half an afternoon, a full day. Um, you're really not sure how long that's going to take. And that's from a lawyer's perspective. From a client's perspective, for in-person, now they're coming in, um, they probably have to pay for childcare, for example. Um, they may have to lose a day of work. And so on top of paying for their lawyer's time, they're also paying um, with that with, with that childcare and with transportation. All those costs add up to that court, court appearance, so very costly. Um, but there's also that emotional aspect that people don't really talk about, right? Um, court is a, a very stressful event. You know, attending court, going there, going up the elevator, knowing you're going to be in front of a judge, the decorum of the court, it, it can be quite stressful. And I found um, that um, lawyers um, and their clients, it's, it's, it's less stressful to do um, court virtually. Um, so there is an emotional cost that's attached to attending in person. Um, other feedback that we've gotten is that um, lawyers are not able to service as many clients anymore. So I know that during the pandemic, you know, your caseload can go up to 60, 70 files. Your time commitments um, are, you're able to carry a higher load and help more clients. But when you're, when you're litigating and you have in-person appearances, that takes away a whole day where you're not, you're not able to service um, multiple clients. So uh, again, caseload uh, much different with uh, in-person um, hearings for litigators. Um, also in speaking with other lawyers and, and also through my own experience, um, I've actually had to let clients go. Um, so switching to in-person, you know, if you're not able to travel to a further jurisdiction um, because it's just too far, it doesn't make sense for you to keep that file. This is quite unfortunate for clients um, because the cases are usually far along. Um, you know, you've had two, three appearances. When you're working on a file, you get to your, know your client really, really well. You have lots of conversations, you're strategizing together, um, and you built quite a bit of rapport. It's so unfortunate to be, it's so hard to give those files away when you, uh, you really want to see that file through to the outcome and then having to give it away because the court now is in Brampton and it's taking you two hours to get there. It, it's really, really unfortunate for those clients. Uh, those clients are also paying for the cost of a new lawyer to get up to speed, right? And there's some, in, there's also some information that's lost, um, you know, things that you retain through um, understanding someone's personality, for example, uh, with a new lawyer, you're starting from scratch. So quite unfortunate situation when you have to get rid of um, a file or, or provide it to another lawyer when you've been the you've been on the file for uh, for a lengthy uh, period of time. Just on that, um, Lisa, I see you know yeah. the Ontario lawyers have their private Facebook group, and I, I see almost every day lawyers saying, "Can somebody take on a file in Ottawa or somebody take on a file over here?" Because they can't, right? They're getting ordered back to court and they're not going to travel there. So that, right. that seems to be like a daily problem the bar is experiencing. Yeah. 
and, and it's unfortunate, right? Because the, these are clients that are paying for that now, right? They're paying for the loss of the, the knowledge of the lawyer, the relationship that you've built over one, two years sometimes. You're losing all of that. You're starting fresh and, and again, new, adding to the cost. The new lawyer's got to get up to speed, right? Absolutely, yep. And yeah. then you're building rapport again, right? And, and it's so stressful. I mean, family court, the experience, the emotions attached to what we do, it's so high. Um, and it, it's, it's really quite unfortunate for our clients. Um, the other aspect of, 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 you know, what we're getting back from the family law bar is that they're worried. They're worried about their own health and safety. You know, a lot of, uh, uh, there may be lawyers that are immunocompromised, um, lawyers that are caring for their children and their elderly parents, for example, they're pregnant lawyers. Um, this is creating a lot of stress um, with regards to the pandemic's not over. And um, again, a lot of people are worried about um, protocols that they don't know of. Um, you know, what are the safety protocols? We don't know. There's no, there's not really um, any, there's not enough information about what courts are doing to keep everyone safe. So that's unfortunate. Um, and then my last point is regarding case lines. So uh, the court implemented case lines, which is a, a program um, that we use uh, to, for, to share documents during a virtual court attendance. So we upload the documents, everyone's there, um, everyone at that court appearance can see that document, the judges, the lawyers, um, the opposing party, for example. Um, so again, confusion, you know, what, where, where does case lines fit into in-person? Um, a lot of courts don't have Wi-Fi. So are we going to be bringing our laptops, having to download case lines onto our laptops what, what is the role of case lines? A lot of money has been put into case lines um, and there's a lot of confusion about, uh, you know, the viability of this program and, and what's going to happen with it. So overall, a lot of confusion. A couple follow-up questions. Do you ever try to you download anything at the courthouse? You usually have to walk to one side of the building and point your phone yeah. to the hotspot. It's terrible, right? Um, Question yeah. came in. I just want to follow up, maybe send this to you, Nafisa. Um, if the seventh wave, which I guess is what we're in now, gets unmanageable in September when kids return to school, you think the courts are just going to pivot back to fully remote? Or are they going to? I would have hope. Yeah, I would hope so, Russ. I mean, I think I think when I, you know, there's got to be built-in flexibility to these practice directions. And there, there, there are tons of practice directions that have come come across through the pandemic. So I think it has to be, you know, what is the data showing us? What is the experience? And then pivot, pivot, pivot. I think it's important um, that uh, there be a built-in flexibility to our practice directions. Thank you so much for that. Okay, we've gone long enough without a poll. So let's get <laughs> what our audience is thinking. And um, then I'm gonna have a question for Lisa as well. So. How, how do you respond to clients who want a virtual hearing but do not have access to uh, computers or the technology? So we're going to give everybody a moment. I want to thank everybody who just completed our survey results. We're up to um, 66. So we've had 20 people send in their survey results. We have over 110 people online right now. So there's 50 of you out there who haven't clicked the button. Please, 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 this information is very valuable to us. Help us understand what your experience is. Um, we have our own perspective, but we're only four or five lawyers and some other lawyers are on our committee, but we want, we want to make sure that we're reflecting what the bar is experiencing. Um, so that's going to uh, bring us into our next topic. So we've heard what the bars, just, well, just a quick question to you, Lisa. 
we know you've got, you know, 15, 20 lawyers at least working for you, depending on what day of the week it is. Uh, do they prefer do they prefer court or virtual? What's your experience been? Um, all but one prefer virtual. The one that prefers in court is for the reasons that uh, Brian has discussed about going back and schmoozing and getting caught up with colleagues and judges. But yeah. overwhelmingly, staff do not want to be in court. Yeah. All right. That seems to be the consensus of my office as well. Um, all right. So let's see what our audience thinks about this poll question. All right. Um, so how do you respond? So giving access to a laptop, about 12%. Facilitate hearings by having clients come into the office and sharing computers, 34%. I see that actually quite often. I'll ask counsel where if their client is logging on, they just turn their screen and their client's sitting uh, four or five feet away. Uh, go to the library, use uh, another place to get access to about 8%. We conduct practice uh, sessions or test runs prior to the hearing. So only 3%, that's surprising. Uh, none of my clients have technology access problems, 43%. Uh, Isn't that that's, uh, fantastic, Even if they don't have technology access problems, we always do a test run, uh, maybe with one of our clerks, just, just to ensure that they know how the breakout rooms work and everything else. But that is an impressive number. Um, what do you think of that data, Lisa? Um, I think most of our clients are um, happy with virtual and we do the same thing. We do a check before and I run through them with them. Right. And there's been problems that couldn't be solved pretty quickly. That leads seamlessly into our next topic, what our clients are saying. And I think that's uh, your, your turn, Lisa. That's my go. Well, um, Brian and Afisa have also gone over many points that I'm going to speak about today, but overwhelmingly so, our clients are strongly against going back in person. The main reason is time efficiency. A lot of people don't have um, the ability just to take off a day for court and to go. Um, the travel time to and from court is a lot. It's wasted on them. They'd rather be at home with their families or back at work. For virtual appearances, as we discussed, sometimes it only takes 30 minutes, which they can take a break from work or for their family and just log on and off. The costs which are wasted have been talked about today. Our, our clients are astounded about the changes that have occurred in the past, from the past two years to now. What's gone from needing approximately $500 for a court appearance virtually has literally gone to asking for a four to $5,000 retainer just in case because if we don't know how long it will be, including travel costs there and back. Another problem with the time of being in court as it was pre-pandemic is that we have to sit around and waste time when we're not working on other cases that we can do while we're in the office. We can put a pause on the Zoom and work on many other cases like Nafisa has been talking about before, which leads me into the problem that a lot of the, our lawyers have been having is the Wi-Fi in certain courts is just not good at all. We can't uh, log in through our VPNs. We have to hotspot and, and it's just not as reliable, let alone we don't have two screens to work on in court and it's just not as efficient. Clients have stated they've had to pay for daycare costs for their children, pet walkers, pet babysitters, parking, which we maybe don't even think of, but people have to pay for parking. It's a lot of money. And sometimes there's three hour limits, which means clients are running out of the courts to shuffle, park in a different place. 
and which has already been spoken about today, the high cost of gas is ridiculous. Another main concern for clients just like us and our staff is health concerns. As someone said today, I, I'm not a doctor, but we still are in the seventh wave of COVID. People just don't want to go to court. They don't want to be with people. Some of the courtrooms, the breakout rooms are tiny. And if you're with your client and your other counsel and other staff, you're, you're so close together. People don't want this. A lot of the lawyers have expressed that there's no masking going on in many of the courts. Um, in some of the courts, there's no plexiglass up anymore. Um, and another comment from a lot of our clients have been they have young children who aren't vaccinated yet because they haven't had the ability to recently. So there's more um, problems and potential exposure to COVID if they are going to, to court bringing home COVID to their young or elderly um, parents and they just don't want to do it. So it, it's very simple. Overall, they strongly dislike it, unfortunately. There's another cost too, right? The emotional and mental health costs of for litigants. Absolutely. Especially if you're a victim of domestic violence and you've got to see your spouse, you know, 10 feet away from you in the courtroom hallway. Absolutely. They want to be not in court with these people. They want to be at home. They want to be in the comfort of their surroundings. And it's fair that they should be able to have that choice. Yeah. And that often gets overlooked, unfortunately, right? Um, just the emotional... Certainly, there's formality and decorum and an experience of going to court that causes people to settle. But it also takes an emotional toll. I know a lot of times I'll walk out of a, a well, pre-pandemic, I'd walk out of a case conference, and I thought it went pretty well. And my client would say, what just happened in there, right? Like, they just shut down. They're just so overwhelmed about being in the courthouse and that experience that they can't really process any information and it takes a day or two for the recommendations to marinate. So I think we could, you know, alleviate a lot of that by keeping hearings remote, but has that been your experience, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also if they're emotionally not there with us when they're at court, how can we expect them to enter into informed and proper settlements? And then you got the risk of uh, buyer's remorse, right? They call you, I've done this, right? You stay at the courthouse, especially during trial sittings to seven, eight o'clock at night, settle the case. And the next day they're upset with you. They don't like, they didn't fully understand what they were entering into, even though they had a judge managing it and an experienced lawyer advising them. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, there's um, when you're doing an in-person appearance, the cost is so much higher that you certainly don't want to leave the courthouse without something in hand. And, right. uh, and that, does, that doesn't mean good quality of uh, settlement that uh, can, like you said, lead to just simply litigation exhaustion, which leads to settlement. That's not justice. Any thoughts on this aspect, Nafisa? Yeah, I was just going to say, as family lawyers, we have an obligation to advise our clients adequately. So, you know, we shouldn't be waiting for court to start settlement discussions, right? So, I mean, there's got to be lots of discussion before court, even, you know, starting litigation. And it's our obligation to advise our clients adequately. So, you know, sometimes lawyers think that they have to be, um, you know, they have to take really uh, unreasonable positions to look strong. And having done this for a very long time now, well, not as long as all of you, but um, you're the stronger lawyer when you can tell your client, that's a ridiculous thing. Like, you know, come down, let me tell you how you should be doing it. And, and 
really taken a settlement approach and not really add to the fire. You know, you're there to advise your clients. You're not emotionally impacted by their situation. You're looking at that uh, issue objectively. So, you know, as lawyers, and I find a lot of the younger lawyers have this where they think uh, in order to be an adequate advocate for their client, they have to fight the fight. And it's it's really not about that. Um, And you learn that throughout you know, as you get more experience, you learn that it's, it's really about finding solutions and not about fueling that fire. That's sort of that Hollywood image, right? Like I know when, when I'd go to court, you know, the opposing counsel is often a friend or a colleague and we'll, you know, have dinner together and our families know each other. And even if you're just bantering around or joking with the other lawyer, the clients think, okay, you know, you're not advocating for me. You're not fighting for me, right? Why are you being nice to that person? They don't understand our rules of professional conduct. So uh, I guess that bantering and the client suspicion probably is diminished by virtual hearings. But really, really great analysis, Lisa. Thank you for that. Okay, our next topic. Have the presumptive guidelines brought the administration of justice into disrepute? Lots of people I talk to are too scared to answer this question because we're officers of the court. And we have a duty to uphold our court system and, and certainly show uh, utmost respect for all the judges who are working very hard to get us through uh, these changes. Uh, so disrespute, disrepute the state of being held in low esteem by the public. <clears throat> Sometimes we hear this language and we see it in the case law in terms of policy affecting decisions of the court. Um, certainly, I'm going to throw this out to Nafisa first because I know what her answer is going to be. Then we're going to canvas the group and then we're going to run a poll. So we could take this screenshot down from the PPT. So what do you think, Nafisa? Are we teetering on uh, a level of disrepute here by presumptively requiring clients and lawyers to attend court in person? Right. So for, in my opinion, you know, I don't agree with this statement at all. Um, bringing the administration of justice into disrepute is quite a serious allegation to level against the courts. Um, so in my opinion, the courts, um, they have provided their reasoning for their practice direction um, with uh, in-person as a presumptive mode. Um, although I disagree with their views on that, um, you know, we all have a common goal of access to justice. And I think that's what we have to focus on. You know, The court, they're coming to this issue with access to justice in mind. Uh, they have different views about how to uh, achieve that. Um, so I, I definitely don't think, you know, the, the presumption is bringing the administration um, of justice into disrepute. Um, I think where we go from here is, you know, research that uh, you know, Professor Bell and his team are doing, they're conducting, can really h- highlight and help us um, and assist us in filling those gaps. Um, so, you know, let's put our heads together and come up with creative solutions uh, to, the, to the issues we are facing. Um, I don't think we're going to get anywhere by pointing fingers at each other. And, and, and you know, uh, for me, it's, it's really solution focused. Um, let's find solutions. And in fairness, you know, the court were facing serious uh, resource problems prior to the pandemic as well. Right. We were constantly hearing of an uh, overworked system, not enough judges being appointed, uh, really judges working overtime just to try to maintain the system that we do have in place and the pandemic's kind of stressed all that. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, this is not a criticism of our judges. They work so hard yeah. to, uh, to facilitate resolution of cases. 
this is not in any way to criticize their efforts. It's it's uh, what we're saying is that the system can be better, and uh, that's the system that needs to be reformed, and uh, we need to push forward. We've made huge gains during the pandemic uh, with reforming our system, and we need to keep working towards a better way of doing things. And not let, let's not lose those gains, right? Um, right. Efficiency. Right. But, but that's one of the linings of COVID. Let's take the good things we've learned from it with the justice system and like ride with that and learn from it and brainstorm together. Right. And I think it's important for us to voice not only what the bar is experiencing, but our clients, right? They don't really have a form to, even when they're in court, they usually don't get a chance to speak. It's their counselor who's doing the speaking. So it's really a, an important role that we need to play. All right. Long enough. Let's get a poll question going. Um, thank you, everybody, for that. Um, I think this is going to tap into our audience. Uh, yeah. In your opinion, presumptive guidelines unjustify, unjustifiably increase the cost of family dispute resolution, thus diminish the public confidence in the system. So this is anonymous. You can put your answer in. <laughs> Uh, you've heard you've heard what our take is, but we've got over 100 people uh, joining us, so it's important to find out what our audience is thinking. And uh, I think Brian had too scared to answer, but you can answer now. <laughs> you're, safe. you're in your safe place. Last call for poll results. Please take a minute or two. We're going to give you 90 seconds, really quick, 12 questions. Um, no written answers required. Uh, send them in. We're going to review the data coming up very shortly. So you have a few minutes to get your thoughts known. And please. Russ, Russ maybe you can remind them about the survey monkey if there's anybody who joined uh, later. Yeah, that's what I mean. Click on the survey monkey right now in the chat box. Good point, Brian. There is a link to the survey we created for everybody participating today. We're going to take a look at that data shortly. We will be sharing information with everybody after this today's uh, town hall, but we still have 30 or 40 people who have, haven't completed the survey. So please take a few seconds and do that. And um, let's see what our survey results are of this particular poll question. No, 7%. Yes, 55%. Too early to tell, 36%. Too scared to answer, 1%. So. <laughs> It does seem to be that people are very concerned about these presumptive guidelines. That's my takeaway on this and um, questioning the approach that the court's taken, but that's our audience's feedback. Thank you, everybody. We're gonna close out our survey monkey um, and then we're gonna go into the data. So this is a really, really important topic. I wanna thank Professor Bala for joining us today. He's been doing a lot of work with his colleagues um, on this point. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Professor Bala. I think you're muted. Thank you. Yeah, get with the get with the uh, program here, old guy. And I should say by the way, old guy, some of you I have friends and others who are looking at me and thinking, oh my goodness, Professor Bala got into a bar fight or, or something works at home. Uh, no, I I I did uh, uh, roll into a piece of furniture while I was asleep um, at my bedside table. I'm fine. And so thanks to everyone for your concerns. Um, and I should say, uh, I think this 
process is really interesting. The data that is being collected, I think, is significant. Let me emphasize here, however, that this is uh, the data that's being collected by the organizers as opposed to uh, a research group. Um, I'm involved, as we mentioned, with uh, a project with Professor Houston, who's the principal investigator, and Professor Birnbaum at Western Ontario. And we have a more detailed survey. Some people love the survey monkey, and that's great. Ours is a survey monkey, but it, it gives you a chance to uh, say a little more. Some people don't like as much multiple choice. And I'm gonna ask uh, Shannon to put that um, uh, into the uh, chat so that if people want to uh, fill in that survey, we'd be very pleased to have, uh, have people do that. And uh, what I'm going to do now um, uh, is uh, hopefully um, call up um, the survey results. Um, on survey from SurveyMonkey. Um, and let me see if I'm able to do that. Um, These are the results that our audience have completed for today's town hall. So thank you everybody for sending in your answers. Yeah, so this is uh, really helpful. Uh, and um, I'm gonna hope I can uh, do this. Um, and if not, I'm gonna ask going to heighten the uh, suspense for, um, well, I'm not sure why, but. Um, well, while we're getting that up, let's. Maybe, maybe I'd ask uh, uh, Shannon, who's put in our survey, if she could call up the survey monkey results and I'll go through them. And I think it's a, a great uh, survey that gives a lot of information. I should say more generally, what, this discussion, other similar discussions, I think, are revealing is that there are, is um, really two kinds of issues here. One is what is actually happening on the ground uh, in people's practices in courts. Uh, and what is, if you want an empirical questions such as uh, how much money are are certain clients saving? Um, how what is the effect of having court uh, on Zoom on settlement? So there are significant empirical questions, bearing in mind that different people's experiences are very different. And that's revealed, I think, in the both in the polling questions we had and in the survey monkey questions that we have, uh, a lot of variation in experience, although some kinds of experience are dominant. But the other issue or another issue is that the question of trade-offs, who is advantaged, who is disadvantaged. And it's important to remember uh, and, and the audience here, which I think largely or totally lawyers, uh, has a certain perspective. Um, Self-represented litigants are a significant portion of, of people who are going through the courts. And while it, I think the data is showing that the costs of court resolution are going down in the course of um, these, uh, because of the shift to virtual courts, there still remains a significant number of self-represented litigants. Some of those people, by the way, do find things are better in the court uh, on virtual uh, basis, but many of them are facing challenges. So there are a range of trade-offs. Another set of trade-offs, and this has been alluded to, is um, who who's paying for things. So the costs for litigants have gone down. Some of the proposals that are being made, which I think are very thoughtful, for example, why don't we have sort of a, a whole thing virtually? 
the whole court process virtually uh, and with multiple breakout rooms relate to access to technology, which has been mentioned. Um, and at this point, the government is not spending, uh, I think, enough money on actually on justice and in particular on the shift to technology. And, and this has been referred to by a number of people. So I think advocacy is going to be uh, very significant. So let's look at the survey monkey, which I think is really interesting. Most of the people here are uh, um, on this call are uh, from Toronto or Central East uh, here. And I think that that's sort of the Oshawa kind of area. Um, okay, let's go to the next question, Shannon, if we might please. So um, here on the electronic filing system, certainly most lawyers are, I think, finding this significant, significant improvement here uh, that electronic filing, and I think that's just uh, a net savings, you know, and, and it's both working well and whether it was, you know, lawyers, many junior lawyers, young lawyers are actually don't have admin staff, so they'd be going to the courts in person. Um, you, most of you who had admin staff, uh, your staff was going down, and generally this is working well. Clearly, there are issues to work out here to their bugs in the system, if you want, or, uh, and furthermore, uh, again, self-represented litigants, we really, we as a pro and the government, the courts have to make it easier for those who don't have access to lawyers or not using lawyers to actually file their documents. I think we ask when we, when we uh, speak to self-represented litigants, again, huge variations. Some of them are actually very tech savvy. I should say there's an interesting little um, subgroup of self-represented litigants who work in the tech industry like i don't need a lawyer i've got all the tech skills i need and 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 tech skills include being able to read and fill in forms uh and and file documents and so on uh next question please shannon so this is a question about uh use of case lines and again most lawyers are uh really satisfied uh with case lines but there's a little less satisfaction with case lines then uh, with uh, electronic filing, there are distinct issues. And again, here, I think uh, self-represented litigants, most of them find case lines very challenging. Uh, I think though that there's a learning curve here for everyone, including court staff. You know, one of the issues actually is uh, we have um, billions of pages of court documents in, uh, in Ontario that uh, some of which are gonna have to be scanned into the system and so on. I actually understand that there's a long-term project perhaps to move away from case lines to a, a different similar system, but not actually case lines, which is a proprietary system. Um, clearly, I think though that something like this, some kind of electronic uh, document management for court cases is going to be part of our system uh, forever. And I should say e-filing, we're not going back and a number of people have, have pointed this out. Um, next uh, slide, please, Shannon. Next question. So, and this has been uh, um, stated by many of you uh, that um, the vast majority of your clients uh, prefer virtual hearings for many of the reasons we've heard about expense, convenience, but also I think that the psychological comfort. Um, having said that, um, you know, there are uh, this is a group of lawyers, most of your clients, I think, are, are middle income or higher. Uh, there are people who don't, you know, uh, if they're going to go to a virtual hearing, uh, you know, people are, some people are saying, well, uh, some litigants are showing up uh, in court sitting in their car, 
Well, there are people who live in their cars, unfortunately, who are involved in family litigation. So it's not it's not better for everybody. Um, and there, you know, certainly we've had some issues uh, with you know people uh, living uh, separate and apart in the same dwelling, but uh, who have domestic violence issues, are they being threatened, and so on. Uh, I think uh, you know one of the issues is that if it's a contested matter. Uh, there have to be efforts to make sure that uh, everyone that, that, that there's no undue influence, you know, holding up the, your laptop and moving it around the room, which, by the way, is it's not only an issue for litigants. Uh, this has been required for students running the bar admission exams, and the, we know it didn't work perfectly there. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it, it's clear that most people understandably prefer to be in their homes uh, and find it uh, less stressful to testify that way. Uh, and to participate in the court process. Uh, next slide, please, Shannon, next question. Um, so here again, a lot of lawyers and uh, most understandably, most lawyers, most of the people on this call very much want to be consulted. And uh, I think that the process that we've had to this point has been largely uh, one of the government uh, and, the, and certainly the judiciary having a key role. Uh, in fairness, we have an independent judiciary that's responsible for the administration of justice. Uh, I very much like the, you know, the remarks. Um, and I think it was appropriate for Russell to have brought up, are we bringing the administration of justice into disrepute? That's a, a, a very high test. And I think uh, others, would, in my view, correctly pushed back and said, you know, judges, and I should say not just judges, but court staff are working incredibly hard to try to respond to the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we're in, I think we're into a dynamic process. And I see this discussion today and similar discussions with other professional groups as a really important part of that. And I am hopeful that uh, these kind of discussions uh, will have an impact on the, uh, on the government and the judiciary as we, as we move forward. Um, uh, but I think, you know, a lot of people did feel, or some people felt, and, and you know, this was quoted in the various newspapers, uh, some lawyers were commenting they were, that the bar was not consulted enough, and that's clearly reflected here. Uh, next question, please, Shannon. Um, so here, the, and this is a, uh, an issue where, uh, again, most uh, lawyers feel that if both parties agree and their lawyers uh, that they should be able to have, uh, uh, there, or at least there should be a, either they should have it or at least a presumption that they will have it uh, in uh, on uh, on a virtual hearing. There are clearly a few people who disagree, um, and again, uh, it's easier if there are two lawyers. And most of you, most of your cases, you have two lawyers. Uh, if the other side self-represented, there may be really issues. Uh, again, access to duty counsel, although. Uh, and you know, one of my many uh, roles or trying, you know, I work on a work, excuse me, I'm a volunteer on a legal aid committee, getting legal aid lawyers back. And we were talking earlier about the, the challenges that, that due to counsel face uh, in the health setting and so on, meeting up with uh, self-represented litigants. Uh, but here, certainly the, the vast majority of you think that uh, it should be that the lawyers at least either presumptively or, or completely have the authority do that. Um, again, the, there's a, a tension with the judiciary in part leading to efficiency questions that I think we're going to come to. So next question, please, Shannon. 
Um, this is, and here there's a, uh, and this is a more contentious issue that if one party or lawyer has a good reason to ask for a virtual hearing, then the presumption is that the hearing will be virtual. And notice the wording here isn't quite the same as six, so it may be different. Should it be a presumption? I think that clearly judges are, are making decisions. And one of the things there was this discussion about uh, variation across the province, which is I think uh, certainly variation across the province actually is true in everything, whether you're talking about healthcare, access to justice, courts, and so on, it's a reality. In my view, uh, some flexibility is, is desirable in the sense that uh, if you have a different population, if you have different court structures, you say, well, this, you know, the courthouse we have doesn't have any access to the internet right now, that may be a significant factor in whether or not what you're going to do. And certainly the question of who is gonna decide is gonna be uh, significant um, and how are they gonna make that uh, decision? What factors uh, are people gonna to have to argue motions about where, uh, whether they're gonna have a virtual hearing um, uh, or, or not? Um, uh, I think that you know some of the cases of, uh, and we have very few reported cases actually dealing with the issue of how the guidelines are being implemented. Um, I think that you know the views of, of lawyers and or litigants more accurately are significant. Again, here though, um, one of the things that we really haven't talked much about is uh, we said, well, either virtual or in person, can we go to hybrid in the sense of saying one lawyer and their client are on Zoom and the other client is in the courtroom? Um, and that certainly is manageable in theory, or not just in theory. There are many, many you know uh, private. Uh, service providers who, who do that, it is very challenging for the courts at this moment with this technology to, to have that hybrid. I think what we're, we will have and do have to some extent already is a hybrid court system in that some cases are virtual, some cases are in person, um, but this, this question about splitting is going to be uh, uh, continue to be a challenge. It's clear what, what our, uh, the respondents here think. Uh, next question, please, Shannon. Um, so here, how big are the savings? And uh, just for a single appearance, and it undoubtedly it depends. And you know, this is a generalized question. Uh, what kind of court appearance is it? Is it uh, as you know, first appearance, uh, where, which would be fairly perfunctory? Is it uh, a contested motion? And I should emphasize, and I think everyone here is aware that the guidelines that we have are different. So for different kinds of hearings, so a first appearance that would be 20 minutes actually on the present guidelines is presumptively virtual. Uh, it's the longer motions and the settlement conference. And I think the settlement conferences are particularly uh, contentious, but uh, we see pretty significant savings here uh, from uh, a single appearance that's being uh, uh, over 50% are saving over a thousand dollars. So that's a, a, a for one appearance. And then let's go to the next question, uh, Shannon, please. And this is, you know, the overall cost of savings. And, and I should say, you know, the researcher in me says, oh, this is really interesting. How much I'd want to see your bills. Like this is a, people are estimating what they're actually doing. But I think again, we're seeing really significant savings. And, and I think this, you know, speaks to a point that Brian made earlier, um, are uh, 
do we have, we certainly have had a reduction in self-represented litigants in the courts over the past two years. And one question is, well, is that because uh, legal services are less expensive? And I think that there's clearly some of that effect is there. Or is it that self-represented litigants saying, this is too complicated for me, I just can't file in court at all. And I'm a victim of family violence, I'm sitting at home or in a shelter and I can't get to the courts at all. So, you know, we're going to have to do work to try to figure out um, why we've had a decline in self-represented litigants probably a function of both these things. But I think, you know, these cost savings uh, uh, look very significant. Um, and I think that that's, you know, uh, should be an important factor uh, going forward. Uh, next question, please, Shannon. So this question, you know, the effect of uh, virtual court on settlement is really, really important in that um, one of the arguments that is being made, and, and frankly, it's not, it's a very clear uh, comments in some of the judgments and others made by judges. There's a general belief that cases are more likely to settle if people are in person, that they're more likely to engage, that they're more likely to be particularly affected by a judge. And I think it's important to recognize that the discussion we're having today is about the role of the courts. Uh, I think that uh, Nafisa made a really important comment and set of comments, at least a comment as well, about the role of lawyers in settling cases. And so you know, online mediation, uh, I think, you know, is very different from an online settlement conference, or at least arguably is different from an online settlement conference. Um, certainly, uh, and, you know, others have been, are doing work with what is the effect of the shift to virtual procedural, virtual uh, professional practice on mediation. And you may not get the same results, but here it's clear that most of the respondents here think that there is uh, not an effect. In other words, it's just as easy to settle a case online as it is um, uh, in, in person, although some people uh, think that there's a higher rate of settlement uh, if, if people are in person. Um, so this is a, a really key empirical question. This is significant data. Obviously, you know, we're going to continue to have to do research. Why well, say we, both my colleagues and I, I think more generally. And, and this, by the way, is an issue not just in Ontario and not just in Canada, but internationally. People are really thinking about this question uh, and studying it. And probably the, the, the answer is what kinds of cases are most likely to settle if people are in person as opposed to uh, on, on Zoom. Uh, next question, please, Shannon. So another question here about uh, court appearances is um, really about is, is it easier to, or more difficult to assess credibility in a family case uh, when a hearing is virtual rather than in person? And I should say again, um, there's probably a difference, some difference between judges, although not all judges have the same view about this by any means. Uh, one of the questions is, and, and uh, I think a number of you are familiar with um, Malcolm Gladwell and others that are sort of writing about, uh, and there's a, a huge body of research about uh, credibility assessment in general. And is it helpful to be with someone to read their body language, so-called, uh, to uh, if you're seeing it in person? I've heard some judges, and uh, first of all, 
this credibility question may matter if you're in a family case as opposed to a criminal case, as opposed to a civil case. And I would more generally say, as we're talking about shifting to virtual court or virtual proceedings, the criminal courts are going back much more in person than the family courts. Uh, and the family courts are probably going more than civil uh, case involving two banks or whatever, quite comfortable doing it on Zoom. Um, most of the respondents here, significant majority said, well, credibility can be challenged and assessed as well uh, on Zoom as uh, in person. Um, again, you know, it's ultimately it's judges who are going to say, well, if it's a contested matter uh, and there's viva voce evidence, I want the people in front of me so I can decide. I have heard judges say, and again, it's a matter of public record, saying, well, you know, on Zoom, actually, uh, I can pin the witness, and this depends on the technology in the court, I can pin their picture there and actually look at them more clearly than I can if I'm sitting in a court and kind of looking at the witness on the side. So how the court is structured, what virtual uh, court looks like is, is significant here. And our final question, please, Shannon, for the data. Um, and, you know, this is an important question about delay, uh, and this uh, is not so, this certainly reveals issues about delay, uh, and here we undoubtedly would want to, uh, you know, cross-reference to um, the questions on, uh, on location, and here there's a lot of variation. There are places where it's clearly there's a very significant weight, and the overall question of what is the effect of uh, the pandemic on delay in, in the court system in general, on the family court system in, in particular. Uh, I think the common view is that delay is an increasing uh, concern. And it, we didn't ask, you know, the, the, we've been focusing on what's the experience of individual clients. Um, I think there have been some comments made, it may be more efficient for some clients or many clients certainly clients of lawyers to be online, but judges cannot deal with as many cases uh, in a day, particularly around the settlement conference issue. And there was a good suggestion made, oh, why don't we say, why don't we have you know, several breakout, you know, one judge as in, in the, if, they, if things are in person, dealing with a number of, of cases at the same time, getting them into different breakout rooms, that's a good suggestion, although, and, and certainly a very good suggestion, interesting one. Uh, effectively, that requires the judge to have, effectively, if you want two screens or multiple screens or whatever, uh, and, and court staff effectively running a number of breakout rooms and monitoring it, um, which judges at present don't have. Again, that's an issue of putting up the, the funds. In my own view, you know, we're in a dynamic process, which I think is really exciting. And I should say that the organizers of this, while I don't agree with all their, and, if, and they're not you know, unanimous in their views, but uh, getting the organized bar involved in these discussions going forward is really important and valuable. It's a discussion dialogue with the judiciary, with the government uh, involving self-represented litigants, recognizing that different people have different kinds of practices. So victims of family violence, lawyers representing victims of family violence, may have a different view from, from others. But thank you uh, for inviting me and involving me in this. I think we're going back to uh, Russell. That's a great analysis, uh, Professor Bella. Thank you very much. Maybe uh, we could just survey everybody, do a couple quick takeaways from that data. There's a lot to unpack there. Lisa, what are your thoughts on the survey results? I mean, I think the survey results 
support what we've all been saying is that we want to be more involved in the decision making process about back to court and that a, a, a lot of the family law practitioners and definitely most of our clients, if not all of our clients, want to have the presumption to be virtual. Thank you. Brian? Yeah, it, it just confirms what we've been saying all along that uh, we don't want to step backwards. We want to continue to go forward. And as Professor Bella indicated, yeah, there needs to be an investment in, in technology and, and in training uh, to take the next step forward towards uh, a more efficient, effective virtual family court system. Great. Nafisa, thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it's it's easy to just regress to what the norm is, right? And I think what what the, the survey data, the data shows is that um, there, there's a lot of variation in what people are thinking about this issue, which means it, it's a deep issue um, and, and, and it's nuanced. And so there's not a one solution fits all, um, but I think that there's definitely room for improvement and discussion, and, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, in my experience, um... With respect to the delay, the one the one data set, I found case management judges to be very accommodating. If we needed um, a further recommendation, perhaps five six weeks down the road when an appraisal came in or something of this nature, they would just say, "Okay, log on at nine. I'll give you ten minutes to deal with that one specific issue." So, I've found that part of it has been very good. And with respect to this idea of you know. The old system where we would have people negotiating in the hallway, that still required the court service officer to chase everybody down when it was time to come back. Sometimes they've left the building, people would be getting lunch on a different floor. So there's a certain staffing issue with respect to physically getting people back together as opposed to uh, a breakout room setting. But thank you everybody for those comments. Going into our final topic and then we're going to get into Q&A. Thank you everybody for being patient with us, but the data is really, really important. And thank you for that, Professor Bella. So next step, moving forward, improve the justice system. I think we're back to you, Brian. Yeah, th thank you. Um, oh, and another fancy slideshow. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Did I, I miss any polls? Wait a second. Okay, yeah. uh, Shannon, hold on, let's just, uh, was there one more poll we wanted to run? I think so. Yes, we have a final poll. Just throw it up there quick and then people can answer. Go ahead, Brian, and then we'll just put the answers up in a couple minutes. So let's let's start with our final topic, Brian. This poll question, are remote Zoom court hearings more efficient? I think we're gonna know the answer based on the data, but we'll leave that up for a minute. Just run the results, Shannon, and let's get to Brian. Thank you. Go ahead, Brian. Okay. I'll just share my screen there. Uh, uh, a must-read book is Richard Susskind's uh, book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. Uh, and this was written pre-pandemic. He says the justice system will be radically transformed. And he has since then said it has been radically transformed by the pandemic and the changes that we've uh, embraced during the pandemic. Uh, it, and it will continue to be radically transformed by way of leveraging technology to make it a more efficient system for everyone. Um, relying on the internet to provide uh, justice, uh, the justice service to more people won't be without struggles. We're not saying that it's, the work is done. What we're saying is that 
it's better than going back to the old old days of enforced person court. We need an investment in technology by the government, and the province has begun that uh, uh, with the in millions of dollars invested into case lines, uh, allowing for online filing of court documents. But to make it work, we need to find a way to give those who do not have easy access to the internet uh, some way of accessing it. Absolutely, perhaps computers can be available for their use at the courthouse or uh, at justice hubs or, and these cabs don't even need to be uh, at a courthouse. They could be local uh, to the, the community. So that there are many possible solutions to increase the accessibility from 97% to 100%. And we need to educate the public. A lot of it is education and support, supporting the judges uh, in the use of technology and ways to make it uh, more efficient and effective. Uh, if judges are not able to navigate the systems, then we need to train them and provide them with the support. There will be bumps in the road going forward, there's no doubt. Uh, but look, look how far we came during the pandemic. In 2019, none of the family court was online. And by the end of 2020, we were all doing Zoom court and filing documents online. The whole world went online for the provision of legal services during the pandemic. And it was an amazing leap uh, forward. Um, Professor uh, Suskin uh, created this website uh, to track the move to uh, online courts. Can you take down the poll? Is it done now? Yeah, uh, I think the poll's down. Just exit it, Brian. Here are the results. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. It really uh, saves time and expense. So yeah, consistent with the data that we got. Thank you, everybody, for sending in your point, your yeah. poll results and questions and answers. Go ahead, Brian. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. So Professor Suskin created this uh, website to track the moves to online uh, virtual courts around the world. He has reports from 168 jurisdictions uh, as to how they've moved court systems online. The world really embraced technology. and. Uh, this is just not the time to step backwards and return to in-person. We need to take the next steps uh, forward to make our court system more accessible and more affordable and more efficient. And governments need to invest in technology uh, to, to make that happen. Um, so what we'd love you to do is uh, the next step is to urge the government urge the government to embrace technology, urge the government to invest in technology and training uh, so that it, we can increase the efficiency and effectiveness of the court system leveraging technology. And so uh, contact the attorney general, this is his email address and his phone number, uh, and urge him to push for more investment in the court system so that it makes, more, uh, makes it more accessible. Doug is a lawyer uh, in the Aurelia in near our community, and he really understands what we want to do. So, but he needs support from others to be able to uh, get the funding that we need to, to uh, influence, to, to make this system better. So please, if, if not uh, the attorney general, if you reach out to your own member of parliament and uh, urge the, the government to take the steps to support a, um, the, the continuation of virtual court. Great, great wrap up, Brian. So let's get some Q&A in. We're gonna wrap this up in nine minutes. I wanna thank everybody for their time. I wanna thank our audience for sticking with us.
We usually don't go past an hour, but it was really important to get the data in from Professor Bella. And our host is back with uh, hopefully for some Q&A. Yes, uh, thank you to our panel. Thank you very much for your insights. And um, we want to thank all of our audience members who sent in questions. We've received quite a few questions, so we'll do our best to get through as many as we can in the next nine minutes. And first question I have here is, has there been any direction with respect to paper filings? At the commencement of the pandemic, I understood we undertook to have all documents be refiled in paper. Has there been any update on this that you can speak to? Refile. Yeah, the idea, I guess, was the pandemic was going to be short, right? And we're going to put everything in in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> when we came out of lockdown in March of 2020, I can't imagine the last two years of paper being filed with the court. I don't even know where they'd put it. Um, what do you think, Brian? Or in a few yeah, I, don't, I don't think my understanding is that that's not happening, and and that there is a continuation of of the use of case lines and the, the government is fully committed to case lines and online filing, which is a really great step forward. Uh, of course, there's some glitches with case lines, but uh, for the most part, it's uh, people appreciate it. And it's, it is a, a really great step forward. We just need to continue to use uh, virtual platforms like Zoom for the services. That's my, that's my understanding. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. I was just saying, um, that's my understanding as well, that we're not going to go backwards with the paper filing, that we're going to continue to use case lines. Yeah. Visa just did a five or 10 day trial on Zoom with case lines. Can you imagine filing all that paper now after you get your decision? No, I mean, definitely uh, we need to keep moving forward and not regress back to our old ways. The environment, for example, I mean, just being able to, you know, have everything electronic is, is just, it's it's such a silver lining that I, I would, it would be quite regretful if we went back to paper filings. Yeah. All right. Great question, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your comments. Next question I have up here is, what is this committee's end goal? Wow. Nafisa? <laughs> well, we got the petition. Why don't you take a crack at that, Nafisa? For, for me, the end goal of our committee is really a more efficient system, right? So, I mean, for us, it, the presumption of having virtual hearings is what we're starting with, but um, there, there needs to be improvements. So baby steps, uh, but the end goal is really um, access to justice. Um, if, if we look at the overall um, sort of overarching goal, it's, it's access to justice for our clients. Yeah. Just... Right. And I think we all are on the same page that we think that can uh, be more easily obtained with mainly virtual appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Just on that note, you know, in Lindsay, where I live, we have clients with legal aid certificates prior to the pandemic who couldn't get lawyers. And now they've all they've got counsel from Ottawa, Toronto. It, it really improves access to justice. That was a great point. Thoughts, Brian? And goals? Yeah, the, as uh, Nafisa and Lisa have said, we want to improve the access to justice. And we our experience has been that uh, virtual family court, you know, Zoom court has been a, a real step in the right direction. So we want to move forward. We don't want to regress back to the old days. Right. Okay, thank you for that question, Shanna. We got some time for some more, I think. 
Yeah, I think we have time for a couple more questions. So the next question I have here is judges are stating that virtual court is not as efficient as in person. Why do you think this is the case? It's lack of lack of training and infrastructure um, in my perspective and, and really understanding, again, it's a conversation of why, right? Um, in my perspective, they're not, um, I don't think there's enough money being provided for resources and infrastructure to allow for virtual court hearings to, to be um, efficient, right? So I think that's where um, maybe having more court reporters, maybe having more staff um, to assist the judges after they've, um, they've had a virtual hearing. I think they're doing all of their own paperwork, for example. That could really, that does slow down the process. If, if yeah. I could, so jump in. Go ahead. You know, one, one thing is that uh, lawyers see a somewhat different slice of cases than judges. There's a lot, obviously a huge overlap, but judges see more self-represented litigants. One of the, the comments that is made in the Q&A, I think, which is um, you know, access to technology, if you're, if 97% if or 100% of your clients have access to technology, it's probably because you're not doing many legal aid cases, which is, is true, but I mean, most, in fact, most lawyers don't do legal aid cases, but judges see a lot of them. And another aspect is, uh, you know, people who are defined court orders, which is a relatively small part of the caseload of most lawyers, most of your clients, when they get an order, they follow it. But um, there are people who don't. And I think judges understandably say, if this person is not complying with court orders, even if they have a lawyer, I want them in court. I want to be able to talk to them directly. And again, Nafisa made a really important point. If you're, as a lawyer, you're, you know, giving your clients that message, that's great. Uh, not all lawyers do that. And so judges say, you know, there's some lawyers or some clients uh, and some self-represented litigants where I need them in court to give them a message. Uh, and so that that is part of the, the differences that, that, that are, are being revealed. But I think the general point about dialogue and, and flexibility um, and you know one size clearly does not fit all on these uh, cases, uh, this issue, set of issues is ordered. Sorry. That's a great point, Professor Bella. If you're before a judge and prisoner's box is 10 feet away from you, you're gonna take that court order pretty seriously or you might be spending the, the lunch hour uh, down in the cells, but um, that's something you don't get on Zoom. Great point. I also want to add something, Russ. I think, I mean, duty council did not pivot as quickly as, as I think they should have. So I think a lot of self-represented litigants were left kind of um, without the resources because of the lack of pivoting for the for duty council. You know, why not have Zoom, um, a, a Zoom option for duty council for self-represented litigants who don't know what they're doing, right? And, and have have that voice. Um, I'm not sure what the, the, the reasoning is for that, but I think that that could have really, really helped with self-represented uh, litigants. Well, back in the day prior to the pandemic, the duty council would have their own office. Uh, services were needed. Clients would walk down, sign up, maybe get a, an opportunity to speak with him or her in an hour or two. Uh, there's no reason why that duty council can't be in a waiting room while the superior court is in session on Zoom and the judge can call him or her in and they could do other work. It's no different than being physically in an office at the courthouse. Um, sorry, Brian, were you gonna say something there? Oh, I just, my simple answer is technology and training. You yeah. can't do uh, one without the other. 
it, it needs to, there needs to be education of uh, and support of both the judiciary and the self-rep and, uh, and technology improvements. You know, yeah, we're not there, uh, but we're, we made some huge progress and let's keep the movement forward. Let's keep the momentum positive. Any, any addition to that, Lisa? No, I agree. Okay. That brings us to just wrapping up the presentation. That's all the time we have for Q&A. We just want to, first of all, thank you to all of our panelists again for your time and your insights today, and also to the entire committee who have contributed their efforts to today's presentation. And we also just want to say a big thank you to our audience for joining us today and also for all of your participation in our polls and surveys. We really appreciate your feedback and your contribution to today's discussion. 